You're listening to All the Best. I'm Danny Stewart. This week, stories of unlikely survival and of roller skating as a form of therapy. But first, we join David on a rapid nosedive from 8,000 feet in the air. I just went from fully awake to unconscious in a matter of, I'm guessing, a couple of seconds. And then the lights went out. The last thing I saw was a view of the beach in a vertical dive at about 8,000 feet. My name is David Phillips, and I'm a retired pilot, and I spent um, eight years in the Air Force between 1974 and 1982. I experienced G-Lock in 1976. I've just turned 20. Yeah, as a 20-year-old, you're very, very carefree and fairly bulletproof. You tend to think that things will happen to other people and not to you. You know, you're going to live forever. G-Lock is a G-force-induced loss of consciousness, and it's caused by blood draining away from the brain, taking with it, of course, the oxygen that the brain requires to function. If you just imagine swinging a bucket of water around your head, the water stays in the bottom of the bucket due to centrifugal forces, and it's the same situation with your brain. I was flying a, um, a Strike Master jet, practicing aerobatics. So I pulled up into a loop, and as the aeroplane came uh, out of the top of the loop and vertically back down towards the beach, I suddenly realized that the aeroplane was accelerating very rapidly. My first recollection after losing consciousness was waking up and hearing a noise, which sounded a bit like being in an aeroplane, and at that stage I could only hear, I was still blind. And my immediate thought was, please don't let me be in an aeroplane, please don't let me be in an aeroplane, because that would be a, a terrible place to be, obviously, with no vision. But unfortunately, as my vision returned, my worst fears were confirmed. And by the way, the last thing I can remember seeing was you know, a vertical dive over the, over the beach. So I was sort of desperate to see where I was so, so I could restore the aeroplane to level flight because if it's still on a vertical dive, then obviously I've, I've got seconds to live. The first thing I got back was a little tunnel of vision, I guess, and that was focused on my gloved hand on the control column. Well, all I could see was the inside of the cockpit. And then that little circle of vision became larger and larger and larger. What was once again really disturbing was once I had the full vision, I still just couldn't make sense of what I was looking at, even though it was just something as simple as the sky and the sea and the horizon, clouds and that sort of thing, and the instruments for that matter, which I was intimately familiar with. For several seconds, they were kind of no use to me. Part of the puzzle was I, I couldn't figure out which blue was what. In other words, maybe the blue the blue ocean beneath me was could have, could have been the sky and the blue sky above me could have been the ocean, which would have put me upside down. So now I can look out the window and save myself. I looked out the window and, and salvation wasn't there. And then by and by, those faculties came back and um, I was fully conscious. I realised that I was just in a gentle, more or less level climbing turn and that was just an enormous relief to know that the aeroplane was in a stable and safe situation and not about to dive into the ground. I think immediately afterwards the feeling was more of shock 
exultation of having survived, it came a bit later. I didn't tell anyone about it. I just thought, well, I'll, I'll, it's, a, it's a learning experience for me. I don't, I don't need another bollocking from the squadron commander. But the reason I remember it so clearly is because it was just so terrifying and it just left such a huge imprint. You know, I, I don't recall ever being so frightened of before or since. I mean, you're delighted to still be alive, sort of thing, but then a little sobered and chastened by the fact that I'd allow that situation to develop. I'm reminded of watching a friend's new puppy and every single thing that dog comes across, it's a new experience. At 20 in a strike master, it's a bit like that. Everything is new and very exciting, so you can't get enough of it. You're very tempted to sort of push a bit harder or go a bit further or try and squeeze a bit, a bit more fun out of the situation you're in. Whereas later, you've seen the consequences of that and you, you realise there's no future in doing that. It certainly didn't put me off the job at all. At all. I mean, it was such a, a neat job. It was so much, so much fun and so, so rewarding. It would take an awful lot to change your view on that. But I guess it was also a reminder that life is finite, that there are limits to it. There were a few demons sort of lurking out there. That story was produced by Thomas Phillips. Eugenia Zubchenko was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. Up next, Ange explores the connection between roller skating and anxiety. And a heads up, this story includes discussions of mental illness. Please listen with care, and if you need support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. Crumpled in my backpack, the invitation with its printed balloons declares me welcome. But this is as far as I can go. I sway. The carpet held me more than I realised. I'm always a second away from falling. Only the periphery feels safe, so this is where I stay. All I can do right now is hold on. My peers pass by me, chasing, slipping, screeching into one another. I flinch with each near miss, and I hope that they don't see me. If there are others struggling, I don't see them, at least in this memory. The feeling comes next when I'm watching a VHS in my parents' bedroom. It starts like a hum over the warm cassette static, 
and it grows until I fear I might fall into it and never get back out. My hands tighten over each arm of the chair like it might hold me in place. I'm always a second away from falling. All I can do right now is hold on. I play piano to process this feeling, ironing out the hum into something that might make more sense. Each key must fall far enough to hit the hammer at just the right time. But if I think about it, the impossibility of each of these tiny decisions will drown out the melody, the rules of gravity will change, and the hammers will not hit those hidden strings, and the near misses will grow until the notes are chasing, slipping, screeching into one another. They're always a second away from falling. But I still like rhythm. Here in the periphery, the forward, backwards, forward, backwards, quad skating motion, it rocks me. I'm trying to escape the urge to doom scroll for fear that I might fall into it and never get back out. Birthday party nostalgia washes these Instagram reels and disco lights. Their smiling faces declare me welcome, calling back through 20 years and offering me another try. The skates arrive a month later. In the meantime, my thoughts had taken a forward, backwards, forward, backwards motion of their own. I'd been thinking too hard about it, and like those piano hammers, those thoughts came falling down unevenly in the form of articles that warned that, with wheels on my feet, everything will be a hazard. Every car, every paver, every skater, every bird, every pebble. Wheels make everything unstable. So by the time the box arrives, I've also bought the wrist guards and the helmet and the pads for my elbows and knees, and I've debated the merits of the padded shorts worn mainly by those who play roller derby. And when I take those aqua boots out of the box, I feel weighted down and yet still unstable. Something had passed in those years clinging to the railings with that hum in my ears. I'm not sure that now could be the time to get it back, but the boots are on my feet and there is no disco light projecting my embarrassment, so despite my shaking legs, I stand up. Only the rug in the apartment feels safe to start with, so that's where I stay. I don't take my hands off the walls, and I am so proud because on that first day, I don't move, but I don't fall. I repeat this for days in the privacy of the bedroom, sliding slowly on the sloping floor, my hands hovering along walls and doors and the pads covering all my vulnerable surfaces, and I am flowing backwards and forwards. And here, where there are no pebbles, the hum is quiet and the music is loud and I am doing it and I feel almost safe. You go where you're looking. If you look at the ground, that's where you'll go. I watched the roller skating video tell me this on the day after as the bruise settles on my partner's leg. Leaving the carpet for the first time, I knew instantly how much it held me. There was that feeling again. The ground came out from under me. Fear seized me and the smooth concrete offered no resistance as I plummeted into her. The pads protected me. I hadn't hurt myself, but someone I loved. I'm still sticking to the periphery, wondering what it is about the others that gives them that lightness. Smiling reels still invite me to join. 
just like that crumpled birthday party invitation. And yet, it's only when surrounded by boundaries that I feel safe. I'm always a second away from falling. All instincts kick in. The ones that held me to the railing, to the armchair handles, to the piano rhythms. Boundaries have always felt safe, so this feels very wrong. It starts with the smallest bend at the knee. My muscles shake with lack of practice. Each time that hum kicks in again. I stand, I try again, and then... The thick padding dulls the impact. The fear is still there, but so am I. I'm always a second away from falling. It's still about going backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, and side to side, side to side. The movement that propels a skater forward despite the instinct to walk as though everything is normal and nothing is making things unsteady. So I keep moving from side to side, between letting go and holding on, asking for help and standing alone. These days, I know the name of the hum that holds onto me, this anxiety that makes everything feel unstable. And so I protect myself with the skating pads, with pacing myself, but also with therapy. The fear of falling into all this is still with me, but I will get up again and find the rhythm to keep going forwards and backwards and forth. That story was produced by Angela Glinderman. Ryan Pemberton was the supervising producer. Our final story this week is one of survival against all odds and doctor's expectations. And a heads up, the following story discusses a traumatic brain injury. Thank you for listening to us. It was um, 8th of September 2002. Um, I was in Alice Springs at a primary school national softball championship when I got the dreaded phone call from the police. The message was that my daughter had had an accident camp drafting. She was on her horse chasing a steer around the designated cloverleaf course that we have to do. At speed, the horse was very, very close, right up on the rump of the little steer, and the steer changed directions. It was too quick for the horse to correct itself, so the horse's front legs collided with the steer's back legs and down went the steer, down went the horse, down went Keita, and then the horse did a somersault over the top of Keita and just totally squashed her brain. Um, No chipped tooth, no broken bones, nothing, just a totally squashed brain. 
the next thing I remember, I was being marched into the ICU at Darwin Hospital and in, as I walked through the doors, lying right around the room, was a whole series of beds, all with their own little spotlights, bodies on them. Um, each bed, each body had a nurse and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of metres of cables and, and um, tubes and machines buzzing and whirring and pumping. And centre stage was this other bed with what seemed to be a bigger spotlight. That was where I was taken and that was Keita, looking the same as all the others, but in a shape that I just didn't recognise. Her head was just so massive, so massively swollen that I just kept looking and, and, and I really didn't recognise her. But I took her hand and she opened her eyes and just looked at me and the look was a look of, help me, mum, help me, and then she was out. Well, that was the beginning of um, 12 weeks of hope, no hope, fear, brave, um, courage, depression, anxiety, elation, just a whole mixture of things for 12 weeks while she was in a coma. Um, after about three or four days, they had given up on the medication trying to bring the um, pressure in her brain down, so they stopped the medication. Uh, they took her up into surgery, took out all the, the forehead bone and brought it back down <laughs> with a sticker that said no bone. And I thought, oh. <laughs> And that was just because they're not really used to handling someone with no bone in the top of their head apparently. Anyway, about a week after that, Dr Death, as we called him, was this chief anaesthetist who just boomed death. It was always death. He came in and told us that they were they stopped the chemicals and they needed three weeks to allow the chemicals to just come right out of the system so that they could see whether her brain was dead because they thought it was and that then it would be time to just switch off all um, life support. Well, obviously brain wasn't dead because Keita, who always had a mind of her own anyway, must have heard him because the very next day she started to breathe. She started tripping out the breathing machine. She wasn't going to have a bar of it. And so suddenly it was like, well, you didn't kill her. She's alive. So then we had to start working on, on um, trying to make things better. I had determined then that she was alive. It was going to be hard for me to look after her, so I had to do what I could, even though the doctors, based on their statistics, said she would never be have any intelligence, she would never be any good, just permanent vegetative state. At one stage, the very best we could get out of the doctors was that after, it would probably take about five years, but she could possibly sit in an electric wheelchair without being totally strapped in because um, her body would have absolutely no, no control. Um, and he said that there may well be just enough intelligence to teach her to use the, the – um, to steer the chair with her chin, but he didn't really think that that was possible because he really didn't believe that there was any intelligence and that there never would be. So after um, – after about 12 weeks of, of, this, of going through this, Keita finally responded to the doctors and um, moved her fingers and squeezed their hands and did all those things they do. It's not like in the movies. They don't just wake up and say, oh, where am I? My makeup, is my makeup all right? It just doesn't happen that way. <laughs> Believe me, it doesn't happen. Anyway, after the 12 weeks, then they sent us off to Adelaide to um, a brain injury unit in Adelaide at um, Hampstead for um, further treatment. And as we found out later, the further treatment really, the letter that went with her stated that PVS and um, just to stabilise her and get her set up in an electric wheelchair. 
we didn't know that at the time and I'm glad I didn't know it but when I did find out there was I wasn't going to accept that anyway um, she'd been at Hampstead for about five days when the chief um, rehab specialist came in to do the these monstrous tests these international tests that they do to test people's intelligence they're set up to make them fail they honestly are they're not meant to pass these things Who's the Prime Minister? You know, you've got someone who's still semi-conscious. Who's the Prime Minister? What date is it? Well, she's been asleep for 12 bloody... for 12 weeks. How does she know what date it is? <laughs> God. <laughs> and where do you live? Well, she just looked at me. She didn't know where she was at the time. And I, I asked her, I said, well, where does Mum and Dad live? And she said, Berry Springs. And, and this specialist just looked at me like, you know, who the hell are you to interfere anyway? But what, And I said, well, that's right. That is where we live. She doesn't live there. She could live under a gum tree another bushy, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, it's because she works out on the station. She doesn't live anywhere. They, they're always on the move. Anyway, these questions went on for a while and she just kept failing, failing, failing and getting really frustrated because she, I don't know, I don't know. And um, so then he asked her about a double vision and out of the blue, Keita said, I haven't got any. And he said, yes, you have. She said, I have not got it. He said, well, then read something. And he showed her something on the cupboard and she read it. And he looked at her and he looked at the, all the little followers that were with him and um, said, well, cover your eyes. So she covered, he covered one eye and she read it, covered the other eye, she read it. And he turned around and said to them, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and from that time on, everything changed. The, the whole attitude towards Keita changed. There was something there. There was intelligence there and it wasn't meant to be there according to what they'd been told. So her, her um, rehab in, in Hampstead was a lot, lot better. They got her up on her feet, got her walking and, and my son and I, because we really wanted to make sure that she was better than they said she was going to be, we did a lot of things behind closed doors. We had, a, we had her eating hamburgers long before the speech therapist said she could, you know. <laughs> but um, it was good. We paid off in the end. After six months, Keita started to resist and um, dislike therapies and things. So I figured it was time for us to come home, let someone else who, who was in a critical state have the bed. We came back to Darwin, um, went to rehab in Darwin and after a couple of weeks, the same international stories, international questions designed to make them fail. And after the doctor had asked her a couple of questions, Keita just looked at him and she said, why don't you ask me something about cattle? And he just looked and he said, I don't know anything about cattle. And she said, I don't know anything about this fucking shit you're asking me. <laughs> and that is Keita and that's her, that is actually how she goes. <laughs> But he did turn around and he said, well, there's nothing really wrong with her. <laughs> Which we knew. Her one desire was to get back on her horse, Brumby, her horse, and through the, with the help of RDA and with the help of other friends, eventually she got back on her horse and it was just... I get, I get a bit emotional here, but it was just one of the best things you could ever imagine to see her up on her horse with the biggest smile and actually controlling that horse and riding that horse that she'd had the accident on. They were always close and they're still close. She, it, was, it was magic. I'm sorry, but it was. And it, and it proved to me that 
don't disregard the doctors. Don't When the doctors tell you something, don't just ignore it. They're telling you for a reason. They've got the statistics. But you know what? Just put that in, the, in a little box there so that if you need to refer to it, you can. Otherwise, go your own way and fight. Don't give up. Just fight. It's happened with Keita and now she's a competent rider again. She's riding competitions. And, <laughs> and we're not going to stop. We're going to keep on going. She's just going to keep getting better. In a few weeks' time, we're hoping there's a physio coming up from Melbourne who is quite certain he can make her jump and run. So let's hope he does. But we are not giving up. And it's been 13 years, but it's been 13, 13 years of good times, bad times. But we aren't going to sit back in our little hell hole and feel sorry for ourselves. We've just got to get out there. And that's what we've done. We're happy. She's doing well. Thank you. That story was told by Gladys Docking. Gladys first told this story at Spun Stories, a live storytelling event in Darwin, showcasing extraordinary stories from the Northern Territory. Spun also has a podcast. To listen, search Spun Stories on your favourite podcast app. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with Sin and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Fan is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. This episode was mixed and compiled by Thomas Phillips. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>